Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. Before we get to today's show, just a note to our listeners, you're going to want to stick around to the end of the show for a very special announcement. With that said, let's talk about housing. Connecticut is in the midst of a housing crisis. About 34% of residents are paying more than a third of their income to housing costs. That's according to the Connecticut Mirror. From subsidizing construction to studying rent stabilization, lawmakers are currently figuring out a way that best addresses the state's housing crisis. Rent caps were one of the many housing-related policies being debated at the state capitol this session. But just last week, the state's legislature's housing committee decided not to bring the rent cap bill forward for a committee vote. That's despite a report from affordable housing advocates that says 72% of Connecticut voters expressing support for the rent caps. Joining us now for uh, this conversation that we're having on where we live on housing in studio to my left, I have Ginny Monk. Uh, She covers children's issues and she's also a big time housing reporter in the state for the Connecticut Mirror. Ginny Monk, how are you today, Ginny? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Very good to have you. I'm so happy to have you in studio as well. And also joining us via Zoom today, we have my former colleague. She's a great reporter, investigative reporter for Hearst Connecticut Media. She gets stuff done. Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, how are you today, Jackie? I'm wonderful, Frankie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. And finally, Luis Quintero, the assistant professor of for the Cary Business School at John Hopkins University. Good morning, Luis. Good morning, Frankie. I'm happy to be here. And hello, uh, uh, Jacqueline. And hello, Ginny. Thank you so much for coming on, Luis. And folks, if you're paying attention to this conversation, you can join us. 888-720-9677. 888-720-WNPR. Uh, Luis, first question goes to you. Pretty basic one. What exactly is a rent cap and how do they work? Rent caps uh, are, as you know, their name says, just a way to prevent rents from going up uh, at a rate that the market would determine. Uh, we've had historically two ways of regulating rent. One of them has been rent control, uh, and the other one be- has been rent stabilization. Rent caps refer to rent stabilization, where the amount that the rent can be increased every year by a landlord is capped. And then rent control usually refers to caps that are even stronger because they also limit the level of the rent, not only their growth rates. And sometimes uh, it is confusing because we use the term rent control for both. Uh, but in what is being discussed in Connecticut in particular is a, a rent stabilization type uh, rent growth cap. And Ginny, how common are rent caps in the U.S. and Connecticut? Are we in line with other states on this? Yeah, so there's um, two states in the U.S. that have statewide rent caps in place and about 200 municipalities. Uh, Connecticut is one of 31 states in which uh, municipalities are not allowed to institute rent stabilization. 
I have from your reporting that it's two states, California and Oregon, that have rent caps in place. You know, as I mentioned at the top, the legislature's housing committee decided not to bring forward this rent cap bill to a vote. What did the bill entail? Uh, what what do we have coming out of it? And uh, what did what did the rent cap uh, specifically that proposal have to do with it? What what was that? What did that entail? Yeah, so that proposal included four uh, percent plus uh, essentially inflation, the consumer price index uh, annually, and that that included between tenants. So if one tenant left an apartment and a new one came in, the landlord could still only increase rent by this uh, set amount. And it was sort of in one bill and then put into another one and then sort of suddenly taken out um, of the bill that ultimately passed SB4. Um, And the Housing Committee never voted on the measure. Jackie, how do we get to this point where we're talking about, you know, we have these advocates calling for a two and a half percent rent cap. Then you see the bill right when it comes out, not even like a a month before all this happens. it's 3% and then it goes to 4% in inflation. What do you think happened? I think that's the art of compromise is seeing what you can get the votes for potentially. And if the votes weren't there for two and a half percent, maybe they were hoping to grab more people um, support um, in, in the housing committee, the housing committee at the time when they vote, when, um, when they were approaching their deadline had 15 members, um, which means that, um, Democrats control the committee, and so they, there were at least three Democrats who were not on board with voting a rent stabilization out of committee, and so maybe four percent was just too much that they could really stomach. I should I should mention that four percent, um, you know, when you factor in the consumer price index for inflation, you're really talking about eleven percent increase that this bill would have provided for um, consumers. So if you're looking at you know the median rent in in our state is about fifteen hundred. Um, an 11% cap would have capped um, people from receiving an increase of about $165. And so for someone working minimum wage, that's a lot of extra hours that they would have to um, figure out how to pay for that extra $165 if they're facing more than 11% increase. So just to sort of put it in context. I just want to underscore how quick this all fell apart. You're talking about 3% being in the bill at the end of January. The bill comes out, the session starts in February. By the end of February, you already have this 4% plus inflation figure. Jackie's saying it's basically 11%. And then it's gone uh, within a week or, or so after uh, we see that that figure come out. Uh, in lieu of a rent cap bill, the Housing Committee voted to move forward with a task force to study rent stabilization. Can I play you a clip, Jackie? I want you to hear this. Here's a yeah, that would be great. Well, actually, I can't play that clip for you now because I don't I don't have it for us. But basically, let me let me summarize you what this what was said by this Republican state representative, Joe Paletta. He's out of Watertown. He says this is a way in which we can bring everyone together and come up with a solution. And I'm very much looking forward to what this study finds. And I'm hoping to craft legislation in the future with my other members here on the committee where we can finally get over the finish line, a bill that will make Connecticut more affordable to live. People hearing that, Jackie, weren't so hopeful for the future, and I imagine it actually infuriated them. Yeah, um, you know, a, a, a study that gets debated next legislative session, maybe, 
um, you know, people are facing increases now. And so the the swell of people you saw show up at the state capitol to talk about how rent increases are affecting them personally, um, I think are or more of the mindset of, you know, we need help now. We can't wait for a study. Um, I should mention that, um, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, studies are considered the consolation prize of not helping um, with what advocates are asking for or what um, people are lobbying for. And so, um, you know, there's a long list of studies that either just don't end up happening, you know, the members don't get appointed or um, it sits on a shelf and nothing actually happens. And I, so I think there's a lot of concern of, you know, what will actually happen during a study um, and what the out and whether that will really move the needle in, even in a year. You guys, go ahead. Luis, I think you got something to say. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I wanted to concur. I mean, there's been studies out there, right? We, we, we know things. We know what the consequences of rent stabilization are. Um, I was surprised when I started uh, learning about, you know, this bill not being even uh, voted on because it's a very, in general, popular bill. Uh, people support rent, rent stabilization and, and rent growth caps. Uh, and I guess it just comes to show that the uh, power of landlord organizations uh, have an influence. But one thing I want to push on uh, on here, Luis, is that in Connecticut, it seems like there's a very strong lobby from landlords. Uh, they, they say there's small landlords here that are lobbying against these bills. Are you seeing that kind of New York is a place that you studied, for example. Are you seeing that that maybe lawmakers are siding more with landlords here? What are your thoughts? Definitely. I mean, there was a recent uh, bill proposed that passed in New York State uh, to to widen rent caps to the whole state beyond New York City. And of course, there was this whole idea in the opposition of the small landlord. However, the, a lot of studies came out showing that this figure of the or this you know image that we have of the small landlord having one or two units and relying on that for making a living is less and less common and uh corporate landlords and large owners of uh multiple units are you know what the average landlord looks like now uh so they weren't they weren't able to to get that benefit in new in new york city Jenny, given what we just heard, we like unlikely to see like any kind of form of rent stabilization here this session. What do you think? I think it's pretty unlikely this session. And I, I do also want to sort of underscore the, the people who came out in support of it because these were largely tenants, people who often were working hourly wage jobs, took off of work, got child care, brought their kids to the Capitol, and they stayed all night long. And they didn't get to talk until the nighttime. That's right. That, that, the that hearing went until five in the morning. Um, so, so I just wanted to underscore sort of what these folks were sacrificing um, t- to come talk about how they needed rent caps. That's problematic, right? Because most of the voices you're hearing from, I mean, I couldn't stay that long and cover it and get some sound for us because I had a deadline. And you're hearing from, I, I think I got one person that was a tenant uh, in the three or four hours that I was following this, and it was all landlords, and you have also lawmakers on the committee talking. So I would imagine this happens everywhere, but that's problematic. Sure. I mean, that's sort of often how public hearings and public meetings go, right? The people who have the money, time, and resources to come to these meetings and spend lots of 
Time talking are the people you hear from. All right, guys, we're going to take a call right now. I'm going to make sure that I have this thing locked in. And we have right now a friend in New London that wants to talk about what towns are doing uh, in regarding to affordable housing. And we'll have you guys respond to it. What do you have, caller? Yes, my um, thanks for taking my call. My sister-in-law did a study on uh, in Connecticut, and she found that it's the most segregated state in the country as far as housing. Right down in southeast Connecticut, uh, some of the towns, they put these restrictions in place in their city charters whereby even a two-family house cannot um, have to go up for, for, um, uh, for zoning. And so it restricts, like a town like Waterford, it restricts um, uh, housing development. And so in order, in order to change it, it has to go to referendum. And so it, 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 it keeps people out, um, low-income people, moderate-income people. This is pervasive all throughout the state of Connecticut. Markel, thank you for calling in here. I'm going to pivot right to Jackie because I want to ask Jackie this question. Markel makes a point that I've heard before. Is Connecticut one of the more segregated countries, uh, or states in this country? What do you think, Jackie? In terms yeah, of housing. you know, study, study after study that I've read on, on, regardless of you know whether you use what type of um, index you use, it shows that um, Fairfield County is among the most segregated places in the country, um, or that metropolitan statistical area rather is among the most segregated as well as um, other two other um, areas in the state, Hartford and New Haven. And so when you look at that data, it, it does show things that um, are playing out in places like Waterford. I would mention that Waterford, there was a property um, that was a school that closed, you know, decades ago and is a really rundown property that um, some developers wanted to um, turn into some affordable housing, and instead of allowing that house that that rundown um, property that sits right across the street from a nice park in a single-family neighborhood, um, you know, a few blocks away, um, they want to allow this 86-unit um, affordable housing unit in a school um, within the existing blueprint of that school to be developed. Um, you know, the public hearings on that property were just, you know, some of the comments were just really nasty as far as um, what kind of people you would be bringing into that community if you allowed for such a thing. And so that plays out in community after community after community. Um, you know, I wrote some stories about Westport, Simsbury. You know, I could go on and on about the local zoning mm -hmm. laws that prohibit affordable housing from being able to be built in communities across the state. Um, and really what it gets down to is that we have large lot sizes in order to be develop even a single family home. So in places like Woodbridge, requires an acre and a half to build a single family home. Um, and so that really makes it prohibitive from people um, to be able to live in those communities if really the only thing that's being allowed in almost everywhere in Woodbridge is single family homes. Um, you know, that costs a lot. Mm -hmm. you, if you're able to build two houses on that property, that cuts the cost um, in theory in half. If you're able to build three houses, it keeps cutting it. So um, only allowing one property, a single family home on a large acre or a large lot size rather um, really just doesn't, it isn't conducive mm -hmm. to allowing for more affordable housing in Connecticut. Uh, Frankie, if I could 
add something to that. Sure. Uh, I, I completely agree with, with, with Jacqueline. You know, the, uh, the problem here is lack of supply, and it's basically legal to supply affordable homes in large parts of the state and in large parts of the country, uh, to be honest. Now, I wanted to tie that back and the caller's uh, point about segregation to, to rent stabilization, right? I definitely agree that that is a problem. Segregation of housing is a big problem in, in the U.S., in particular um, in, 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 our, in, in our state of Connecticut. But um, unfortunately, sometimes what the, the evidence we have is that rent stabilization is not uh, an effective tool to solve that, unfortunately. The, the, the data that I've studied the most, uh, now I'm studying D.C. and Maryland, but I've studied the New York City case um, thoroughly, it's showing that, you know, unfortunately, because of how open-ended um, rent stabilization is and because it applies to units and not to people, then what we end up seeing is wealthy, middle to high-income white households getting most of the benefits. Uh, as soon as rent stabilizations are imposed, they get a higher probability of getting a rent-stabilized uh, unit. Uh, they are more likely to stay in this unit because landlords, uh, you know, implement mechanisms to, to discriminate. So uh, it is a step in the right direction, but it's definitely uh, not enough. And there needs to be a lot more safeguards put in place in the policy if we actually are interested in using rent regulation as a way to reduce the segregation we we observe. You know, Luis, I like that you hit on that, and I want to talk a little bit more about <clears throat> discrimination in housing and ways to address that. But first, I think it's time that we can take a break, because afterwards I want to ask you, instead of rent stabilization, what may help communities that need help. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is where we live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. We're talking about efforts to make housing more affordable in Connecticut, including a push for rent caps in the state. 
And if you missed the first segment, let me just catch you up. I have Luis Quintero on the line here, who is the assistant professor of Johns Hopkins University's Cary School of Business. Ginny Monk's also with me. She's the uh, children's issues and housing reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. And Jackie Rabe Thomas, great investigative reporter from Hearst Connecticut Media and CT Insider. And Luis says that the way that we do rent caps essentially don't work. So I want to ask you, Luis, instead of rent stabilization then, what would most help the communities that need help? I would say the solutions are different long-term and short-term. So definitely long-term, we need to be able to build more affordable homes in areas that are desirable for households. Uh, So we need to make some reforms that allow zoning to to not have to follow necessarily local control it's uh, we have we are very used to these uh very localized groups determining what can be built and what what cannot and we forget a little bit that this is very unique to the to the u.s this is not how um, housing decisions are made all around the world so you know even giving some authority to the state or the even the city um, to determine what gets built, uh, I think it's a step in the right direction. Now, in the short term, um, rent caps need to be accompanied by other types of measures that prevent landlords from actually discriminating the kind of people or the groups of people that they give the stabilized units. Uh, what we've seen in other, in, in other places, specifically in New York, is that landlords do not like to advertise that they have rent stabilized units because they like to pick the the tenants that they give the units to. So, you know, making the regulation more transparent, making sure that people cannot be denied an application uh, unless there's, uh, you know, good reason uh, would help us prevent things like what we find in New York, uh, which is, you know, African-American households getting $150 less in rent discount as a consequence of discrimination from uh, monthly from um, rent stabilization, Hispanics getting $135 monthly less in this discount and Asian-Americans getting $43 uh, less all compared to, to white tenants in rent stabilized units. So making sure that access to rent stabilized units has to come together with the rent caps. The, you know, a, a just a, a broad rent cap is not going to be enough. 888-720-WNPR is the number to call us if you want to talk to us and join in on this great conversation we're having on affordable housing, 888-720-9677. In studio with me is Ginny Monk of the Connecticut Mirror. And she said in the last segment, it's unlikely we're going to see some kind of rent stabilization happening this session. So Ginny, uh, any kind of policy different from rent stabilization that could maybe control the rent a little bit that we can see this session or not even not even maybe talking about this session in particular but maybe on the law the 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 mind of lawmakers yeah so i I think uh that's a good question housing has been sort of in my mind a defining characteristic of this legislative session so there's um, a couple of sort of broad proposals that address things from environmental justice in housing to Uh, creating more workforce housing. And there's a couple of um, zoning-related bills that sort of uh, get to those longer-term solutions, right? Um, So actually today, 
the Planning and Development Committee is having its public hearing on the work live ride proposal from Desegregate CT, uh, which would increase residential density near transit stations. So that's one of the zoning proposals that's that's kind of gotten some traction this session. Fair share bill. What can you tell me about that as well? Yeah. So fair share is the other sort of big uh, statewide zoning bill. Um, it, it went through the housing committee and it would um, sort of divide up the responsibility for creating more affordable units between towns. So towns would have to plan and zone for a certain number of units based on the regional need. And who are some of the proponents of this bill and, and what are they saying? Yeah, so there's um, a group called Growing Together Connecticut that's uh, pushing for this fair share bill. They're saying that it's worked in New Jersey, which was uh, the first state to institute it um, a couple decades ago. Um, and they're saying essentially that, you know, sort of incentive-based things or um, other affordable housing tools have not worked on the scale that they need to work. Uh, I, I also think it's important to make sure that when we're talking about zoning and housing segregation, um, when housing is segregated, it's not just an effect on where you live, right? It affects where your kids go to school, whether they have access to certain beaches or public parks, uh, what kind of health care they get. There, there are studies that show the zip code you live in affects how long you live. Um, so this has really big consequences outside of just where do you go to sleep at night? Can you plug that story that you did? Because there's a very specific example you do of a I forget how old this girl is. She might be seven or eight years old, and the things that she's been through in, in Hartford, I believe. Yes. Mice on the ground. That could, Rats, essentially, actually, not mice. Yeah, so that, that's, um, this little girl's name is Layla. She lives in Hartford um, in, in just housing that was in pretty rough conditions. So uh, her family sleeps with the lights on because they're afraid that mice and rats will crawl up into their bed with them. Um, she has missed tons of school because of ear infections, lung infections, things like that, because she's living in in subpar housing conditions. Uh, and, and that's had really direct effects on both her mental health and her physical health. And that's why I ask you about that, because that's a perfect illustration of what you're talking about with affordable housing and a lack of it really impacting people beyond just having a place to live. Jackie, I understand that a lot of this opposition that they have to this measure, this fair share bill, comes from Fairfield County. Why is that? Um, Connecticut has a history of leaving decisions to local lawmakers to make. And we can see how that's played out. Um, Connecticut has tracked the share of units that are um, considered affordable in each town since 1990. And when you look at Fairfield County in particular um, and specific cities, um, not much movement has been made over those 30 plus years. And so um, this idea of leave it up to the locals to decide how to accomplish this um, has a history of whether that's been achieved or not. And so um, when you talk about leaving it up to the locals um, and, and taking away that those decision points and power sharing, essentially, um, there's some resistance. Um, I should mention that there's a bill before the legislature that would require um, towns to submit plans for um, every town to submit a plan to, of how they would affirmatively further fair housing. And if um, it would have to be approved by a newly created office in the Office of Policy and Management. 
And if they, it would have to be accepted by them. And if they weren't happy with it, how it was being rolled out and being and the progress that was being made, they can start to withhold some funding. Um, it's backed by the majority leader in the House. And um, it's been tried before in Connecticut and failed miserably. Um, it's been tried at the federal level and it was ruled back by the Trump administration. Um, the Biden administration is trying to attach some federal discretionary funds to um, aff affirmatively furthering fair housing, which is um, essentially enacting what was passed in the Fair Housing Act decades ago to make sure that towns are living up to their responsibility to provide affordable housing in their communities. Um, there's, As far as the fair share bill goes, um, it would require um, each town and would allot how much each community has to sort of step up and create affordable housing. So, um, you know, depending on which study you look at, there's as many uh, as, uh, you know, 100,000 shortage of affordable housing currently in this state. And so it would essentially divvy that number up and, and, and have towns require towns to step up to create it. Um, they would still get to plan where they create it, but there would be consequences if they don't. Um, move forward with allowing affordable housing. Um, there are also several more immediate bills that would help renters that are before the legislature that um, were created by, that was, um, the bills were supported by Senate Democrats as one of their priority bills, um, as well as the majority leader. There's different proposals for things like not allowing application fees for tenants. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many tenants I've talked to who feel like they're just being ripped off by applying and spending $75 to apply when they know that they're not going to get that unit and being turned out time and time again. Um, also, tapping the amount that late fees can be charged on tenants at $25 um, so that they can't, you know, sort of get in this financial debt with their landlord for paying um, fees too long. Um, also, no denying evictions when someone is looking for a unit. Um, if someone has an eviction on their record that's older than five years, not allowing landlords to hold that against you. Um, this idea of giving people a second chance. Um, no, not allowing winter evictions um, so that someone can't be forcibly removed from their home during the winter months that are cold. Um, increasing fine violations. So right now the state currently caps how much a landlord can be fined at $250 for violating a code. Um, you know, so those rats and those mold and that mold that you just heard Ginny talk about, um, towns are only able to fine landlords $250 for things like that. Um, there's a bill that would increase that to $2,000. Um, and then that same bill also would provide um, $5 million to increase the number of inspectors because many towns just don't yeah. have the um, enforcement mechanisms to make sure that living conditions are appropriate. We're going to get into some omnibus bills that I think Jackie was alluding to there. But first, I just want to remind folks, 888-720-WNPR is the number to call if you want to talk with us this hour on affordable housing, 888-720-9677. And joining me right now is, I understand it, Bethany, who's a property law professor and may not support rental caps, as I understand it, but supports zoning reform. What do you got, Bethany? Yeah, so thank you so much for focusing on this incredibly important issue. I'm not generally in favor of rental caps because I'm just afraid it's going to discourage landlords from getting into the market. But the fair share bill is important both to take, you know, create more supply, bring rents down, um, and um, stop this horrible segregation we have in Connecticut, but also to 
provide the housing that we need to attract businesses and workers to our state to avoid the incredible commuting and discouragement of um, public transportation because our housing is so spread out. So, yeah, um, I, I think that for Connecticut to move forward, we really need to stop the kinds of zoning restrictions that is preventing housing for people in our state. Thank you so much, Bethany. I appreciate you calling in this morning. Luis, I'm pivoting right to you. I want to know I want to know what you thought about what we had to hear from Bethany. I think she's right on point. Uh, I think in the long run, the only thing we can do that actually will have uh, a significant impact and that will not disincentivize the supply of rental homes from developers and landlords is to change um, zoning. However, you know, we, we see a lot of opposition. And when you look at the, it's funny when you see at all the opposition that the fair share bill received, uh, it was mainly under the slogan of it reduces local control. And, and it does do that, right? And But that is the only way to get at this uh, nimbyism, right? This not in my backyard trend that we've been seeing um, all over the country. And that's the, it's the only way where we will allow low-income people to have access to uh, neighborhoods with high-quality uh, amenities. I got one more caller I'm going to take in this segment here. This is a friend of ours from New Haven, Douglas. Douglas, what do you got for us? Well, thank you so much again for this incredibly important conversation. And I couldn't agree more with how many uh, folks in Connecticut and specifically in New Haven that are facing uh, issues around rent increases and, and how much we're uh, burdened by cost burdens of rent. I wanted to hear a little bit more and, and maybe talk a little bit about the uh, economic factors going into construction and new construction and housing supply, particularly cost of construction and uh, cost of capital these days. And, and also, um, how do you make projects fit out? You know, I wanted to just point out that there's a bill being heard, uh, the Work Live Ride bill today, talking about, you know, changing zoning around our, our largest investments in the state, our, tr- our heavy rail system, our train station. And, you know, having to have projects hit out or foot out and have a large enough uh, density to actually afford to build these things. Can you talk a little bit more about the cost of construction and how do we get to building more homes? Douglas, thank you so much for your call. I appreciate it. Go ahead, Ginny. Yeah, so we know that, um, you know, sort of through the pandemic, uh, some costs of construction did go up. But I think it's also important to note here that sort of when you make that investment in constructing new housing, um, you know, mixed uh, use development, you see returns on that. So one of the things that legislators and the governor have talked a lot about is that in order to grow Connecticut's economy, we need places for the workers to live. Um, and, and the other thing is that when people move to a new place or when they buy a house, they spend extra money on things like couches and TVs. And and that's all dollars that are sort of coming back into the state of Connecticut. One thing that concerns me about that, though, when we think about that, because that's a big effort. And we always hear the governor say, you know, we want to keep people in Connecticut. That's a that's a big thing that he says. Jackie, when when they when we focus on this kind of this type of housing, do we do we focus enough on the people that need it, or are we just going to be giving housing to people that I don't know go to college here or whatever? That's just my my thought. I'm trying to play a little devil's advocate with you here. What do you got? 
Right. Yeah. There. I mean, it is worth considering of who you consider workforce housing, right? Because if you if you think about workforce housing for teachers, um, you can quickly start to see um, the demographics of who you're talking about. Um, same thing for other professions of workforce housing. And so um, there is a high need for um, severely cost burdened renters as well for housing for them, not just those who you think of when you're talking about your teachers, firefighters, those who work in your community, um, but also, you know, your baristas at Starbucks who might not be making much as well. Um, and so mm-hmm. um, deeply um, affordable housing is also highly needed in this state and are among the most cost burdened individuals. Um, I did want to mention that when we're talking about um, housing costs, um, you know, there's been some some pretty incredible research by Matt Desmond and Nathan Wilmers about the profit margins that um, housing developers and landlords actually achieve in distressed communities and um, whether or not um, low-income renters are riskier. Um, Their research shows that they're not riskier and that there's huge profit margins in distressed communities for landlords. And so um, I think an argument could be made that there is a margin to um, sort of tap into to um, make sure that um, their profit that they're not raising rent just because they can. Thank you, um, thank you, Jackie. Yeah. Just really quickly because we're almost out of time here. I hate that this ends because I want to talk to Ginny, Jackie, and Luis all day. Ginny, really quickly, I'm putting you on the spot here. Can you just run down quickly what these omnibus look bills look like? Uh, what we could see in this this sweeping bill here for yes. affordable housing. So again, um, it, it's really very broad. There's protections for renters in these bills. Um, there are financial incentives. Um, for more housing construction, workforce housing. Um, there's mentions uh, of transit-oriented development, which is essentially what Work Live Ride is. Um, they're, they're very broad and, and I, I think really tackle a lot of elements of housing. Uh, fair share, that's, or not fair share, uh, fair housing, I'm sorry, is the other uh, in one of these omnibus bills that uh, Jackie mentioned earlier. We'll be looking to see what lawmakers do this session, if anything, to try to get more affordable housing and and some stock in Connecticut. A big thank you to Ginny, who's right to my left in the studio. So good to see you today, Ginny. Thank you for coming on. Jackie, and thank you so much, Jackie Rabe Thomas, the great Jackie Rabe Thomas, investigative reporter at CT Insider. And then Luis Quintero, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Frankie. We're checking in on reproductive rights right after a short break. Take care. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. Aside from housing, lawmakers are also taking up the issue of birth control access this session. Joining me now on the on the phone is great friend of this show, Christine Stewart, editor-in-chief of CT News Junkie, resident boss lady. How you doing, Christine? I'm well. How are you? You know, I, I feel for you a little bit because I'm always worried about the snow because our kids are always having to stay home and we work a lot, so it's not easy. So how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You know, made it through, made it through the rain yesterday. So we only got rain in West Hartford. So again, school was canceled for rain. 
Clearly not snow. Thank you so much for coming Clearly on to talk snow. to us here about uh, birth control access. Anybody that wants to join us in on this conversation, 888-720-9677 or 888-720-WNPR is the number. Hey, why is the state legislature considering legislation on birth control access? Yeah, you know, I think that most people, um, you know, who don't use birth control don't understand um, the obstacles to getting it. Um, You need to go to a doctor, you need to have it prescribed. um, And then, you know, um, you need to go to the pharmacy to pick it up. And so you're already at the pharmacy. So pharmacists, and there seems to be bipartisan support this year for this proposal to allow pharmacists to subscribe um, birth control. So we're not necessarily talking, you know, over the over the counter yet, but to be able to prescribe it. Um, And so, you know, the other difficulties with birth control is that um, sometimes when your insurance company changes, um, one pharmacy uh, accepts um, your insurance company and another pharmacy doesn't. So then you're switching back and forth um, between pharmacies. And I think that, um, I think it was Nathan Tinker, the CEO of the Connecticut Pharmacists Association, said that um, that there's 180,000 women just in the state of Connecticut who live in these these contraception deserts. Contraception deserts, very important to highlight this issue. Do you think there's pressure on lawmakers to do this since the overturning of Roe versus Wade last year? I don't think that they necessarily feel that there there's pressure on them to do this, but I think that there there is definitely a bipartisan effort um, to to get this done. So the chances that it will get done are are probably a little high because look, you know, everybody has a pharmacy a pharmacy in their town, but you know, finding a doctor these days um, is a little bit more daunting and a little bit more difficult. Um, and these are not necessarily um, uh, very high risk um, medications. I mean, there is there is obviously some risk. There is, there is risk of um, blood clots um, and things like that if you have other underlying health conditions. But the pharmacists believe that they have enough knowledge to um, be able to go through that questionnaire to um, counsel patients. Do other states have similar measures on the books? What do we know about the effectiveness of them on, on uh, birth control access? Yeah, they do. So there's already over 22 states um, that that have these laws on the books. Um, and I guess in uh, a recent study in California, 74% of patients said they sought contraception prescription at a pharmacy because it would be faster than waiting for a doctor appointment, right? And 46% said it was because the location and hours were more convenient for them. Sounds like a way to solve sort of these contraception desert issues that we have. Uh, Just want to make a note on on what Christine said. She's talking about California. The American Society for Health System Pharmacists, they say California, the first state to pass such a bill in 2013. Hey, where do lawmakers stand on also allowing pharmacists to prescribe emergency contraception, also known as the morning after pill? So, okay, so the morning after pill, which is also called Plan B, is actually already available over the counter at a pharmacy. Um, You just have to go into the pharmacy, 
and go up to the pharmacy counter like it's not actually like available on on the store shelf but you go up to the pharmacy um and you ask for it and you receive it like there's no you don't need a prescription for it um and this is the medication that you take um 72 hours um after um you you think that you you know may have had a mistake happen and um it just makes the the womb or the the uterus kind of like an unwanted place for um, anything to implant. So they're talking about putting this in a vending machine instead of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having forcing forcing a woman to have to go up to the counter and to, I guess, ask the, the pharmacist for it. That's what I'm imagining, right? It's access. Is there anything in terms of affordability with the price kind of stay the same? Would it change or is there has that not been discussed yet? Yeah, I mean that that's really on the on the drug companies. Um so the price is uh the price is about $50 for a pill and it it's only it's only one pill. Um and um it has to be taken um within 72 hours. Um so there hasn't been any discussion necessarily um on on price, but it was it was a pretty big deal um back in the day um early on when when the legislature um did pass this to to make this available um in pharmacies and so i guess a vending machine would make it even more convenient that you wouldn't have to actually go up to the pharmacy counter that you could just get it from a vending machine hey across the country we're seeing these attempts to kind of dial back access to medication abortion which makes up more than half of all abortions performed in the United States. Can you tell me, kind of give me the uh, landscape of what the access looks like here in Connecticut? So um, we have access to it in in Connecticut. This is the mepristophone, um, and uh, there isn't going to be any changes necessarily with that. Um, There is this lawsuit um, at, at the federal level, and... Um, There has been one pharmacy chain, I believe it was Walgreens, that said that it would not it would not carry this medication in in states um, that wanted to to ban access to it. Um, And so um, it should not it should be available in Connecticut. There shouldn't be any sort of um, barriers um, to that at the moment. And they're not talking about making any changes to that. Just uh, one note here from the news junkie here. Connecticut joined a coalition of 21 other states last week in filing an amicus brief defending the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's approval of an abortion pill called uh, Mifepristone. I I, I got to figure out how to pronounce that Mifepristone, one. Mifepristone, yeah. There I you know. go. Against uh, a legal challenge in a Texas federal court. You got about 30 seconds, Christine. Anything left you want to uh, wrap up here on 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 the, on abortion and and efforts to rather get uh, access here in Connecticut and open up. No, I think that we we have um we have seen widespread access. I mean, it, it's been codified in in Connecticut law. Abortion has for for decades. So, I don't think that we're we're taking any steps to change that and there've definitely been women since um, you know, since the Texas ban um that have come to um Connecticut to avail themselves of Connecticut's um reproductive rights stance. Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. Love having you on. You're going to want to kind of stay on for this one. I got you on hold so that you can hear this because before we go, there's something I got to tell folks about next week's show. 
You may have noticed, I'm going to bring my microphone a little bit closer so I could say this. You may have noticed that I've been filling in for the great Cat Chen uh, on Wednesdays since the fall. And that these kind of where we live Wednesdays, they've had kind of a political theme. There's a reason for that. I'm going to be staying here on Wednesdays. I got an announcement to make at 9 a.m. on Connecticut Public beginning next week. That's because the wheelhouse is back. Let me let that sink in. The Wheelhouse is back. That's the headline. It returns to Connecticut Public. It's hosted by me, Frankie Graziano, Wednesdays at 9. Feels good to to finally share that with you because it's something we've been working diligently on for the last year. And I think uh, folks might remember that Connecticut Public broadcasted a series of debates in the fall and afterwards I would host these breakdowns. Christine was on them. We had Bilal Sekou, a bunch of uh, the guests that we normally have on the show and All of this has been by design to get to know some of the guests who are going to be informing you on the wheelhouse with important local and national perspectives. And really for me to learn how to cover politics and drive the conversation in a way that kind of makes the content make sense to everyone. So like whether you're super into politics or you follow politics because you want to know what the taxes are going to be or you're a nurse that wants to know when the pandemic pay is coming, or you got kids and they're about to get their license and you're worried about the cops pulling them over. This show is all for you. So thank you all for listening. A very hearty thank you to my partners in planning this for a good year now, Tim Rasmussen and Katie Talarski. Thank you to Connecticut Public for keeping me employed here for 12 years. And a very big thank you to Meg Dalton for producing today's show. She's going to be helping us out with the wheelhouse Kat Pastor is the technical director of today's show. Download Where We Live on your podcast app. This was Where We Live. Next week, though, it's The Wheelhouse at 9 o'clock on Connecticut Public. For Connecticut Public, I'm Frankie Graziano. Have a nice day.